Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B SaaS and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics at Measure Up podcast. Today, we're joined by Renee Collinan, founder of Stop Meeting Like This and a longtime business colleague of mine. Today, we'll be covering three main topics. First, the catalyst behind founding Stop Meeting Like This. Second, how does the evolving world of ESG and stakeholder capitalism shape the future of business? And third, what are the return on investment criteria and metrics that will highlight the value of ESG programming? Renee, please take a moment to give a brief background of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics Measure Up podcast. Sure, Ray, and thanks so much for having me. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, so the journey is I started my career as a sales engineer in tech, which is such a great early in career job because you have so much visibility right into the business from the sales side to the technical side to the product management side, et cetera. So I'd love that job, but over time moved into product marketing and management for several tech startups that were acquired by IBM and Microsoft. And Ray, in that transition, something very interesting started to become clear to me, which is in sales, the success metrics for a role or a professional are super clear, right? You of all people know that. And when I moved into roles that were more um, in product management, marketing, et cetera, people would start to complain about how much salespeople would get paid. <laughs> and I would always say that, hey, listen, first of all, sales is a hard job. And second of all, it's it's a vulnerable one because people can see exactly how well you're performing, how productive you are. And what I observed is that most other roles the performance metrics are highly nebulous. It's hard to tell. And so I got very interested in how leaders can evaluate and increase organizational effectiveness. And that journey led me into consulting in which I developed a specialty around that. And then within that, a subspecialty around collaborative effectiveness, which was the basis for Stop Meeting Like This. Okay. So, you know, as a former sales professional and leader of go-to-market teams, I love metrics. I love increasing operational efficiency, which drives faster revenue growth. But Renee, you talked about stop meeting like this. So how did the concept of founding a company that really helped large organizations decrease the negative impact of meetings and emails to business productivity? How did you come up with that concept as your launching point? <laughs> yeah. Well, what we started to notice is a sort of a, a strange market dynamic inside of companies that, that didn't make sense. So if you think about it, your knowledge workers, think your UI designers, your managers, your sales operations folks, they're highly compensated, hard to find, hard to retain people. And yet they are the least instrumented uh, class of workers really in the world. I mean, as a senior executive, you would probably have an easier time assessing the output of your car mechanic or your travel agent over your direct reports or, or the teams beneath them. And that's because those people spend the bulk of time in meetings and in email, which, which makes sense. Their jobs are to drive work forward, right? And so that can either be a very effective use of their time and a great way to, to create value, or it can be a total time suck and soul suck along the way. 
And the answer is it's usually both, but you can't really tease them apart. So you can't really dry operational efficiency of maybe your scarcest resource, which is the time and attention of your of your high-end knowledge workers. And the price, if I can take a minute to quantify it, is huge. So imagine that you have a senior executive who spends five hours a day or call it 25 hours a week in meetings, which seems reasonable, right? If you assume that, that's 12... 100 hours, give or take a year. Okay. So we've done a ton of research on this and we can tell you that on average, about 32% of meeting time is wasted, which is huge. So let's just say that's roughly 400 hours over the course of a year, which translates to, you know, six to 10 weeks, depending on what a work week looks like. So that is a massive inefficiency. And if you multiply that by everybody in your company, it's, it's, it's an outrageous waste of your top talents. And that's the problem we set out to solve. Interesting. So here's my question, though. So you take these highly compensated people, you combine that with work cultures that are firmly ingrained over years and years, if not not decades. Do executives really want to rip apart, kind of almost do unit of work time-based studies of how to decrease meetings and decrease emails and say, yeah, well, I know that will increase productivity. I can measure that by 20% more growth. Do they really want to take that on, Renee? Yeah, it's a great question. And the answer is sometimes. And I will kind of share a little bit more about that. And then if we have time, I can share the five questions that any of your listeners could ask to get a pulse check on whether it makes sense to do that for them. But to reel back for a minute, when we started Stop Meeting Like This in 2013, we assumed that with numbers like that, everyone would care about solving the problem. And it is true that everyone agrees it's a problem and complaining about meetings is practically a cliche in in every business from a startup to a large enterprise. But I would say that leaders have a huge variance in their appetite to solve it. And it's because of what you said, which is it is embedded in their culture, their decision-making norms, their email norms, their meeting norms are all sort of immersed in the collaborative culture of a, of a company. So that means fixing it requires some consistent leadership attention, not just a sort of an initiative or a program or something like that. And so what we found is that organizations who have a vested interest in the long-term productivity of their current employees are the ones who are willing to tackle it because it's not easy. So Biopharma, for example, is a great one who will tackle this and tackle it effectively. And it's because when you think about a Biopharma thinks very long-term, right? It takes years to get a, a new therapeutic to market and billions of dollars. And they need people to shepherd those therapeutics through that process. And so they actually care enough about it that they'll put money and time and attention behind it. Where if you think about industries, maybe like retail, which have a more transactional mindset, they're less likely to invest what it takes to address this, this gap. Well, I want to double click for our audience in a moment on those five questions to ask, but let's talk about what's happened over the last 12 months. So I've always been in VC-backed earlier stage companies. And, you know, it was, you know, 50, 60, 70 hours a week. That was the norm. And then here came COVID last year. And what I found was the number of meetings I was requested to be in on Zoom or other collaborative web commerce tools, right? Mm -hmm. I started at 7 a.m. and I'd have meetings sometimes at 7 or 8. Do you think companies became more aware of not only the negative business productivity impact, but even the, I'll say the personal impact of non-productive virtual meetings? Yeah. You know, COVID has been such an interesting time 
on this topic. So for, for one thing, yes, as you said, leaders found themselves in even more meetings because they needed to spend a lot more time with employees one-on-one, checking in on them, sort of the care and feeding aspect went way up for, for managers because they couldn't see their people. They couldn't you know, have a chat at the coffee. Somebody who's living alone has a really different situation than someone with toddlers. And all of that was just putting a huge added tax on leaders, resulting in a bunch of meeting overload. In fact, one financial services company I know made the assumption that employees with toddlers would have a 50% productivity decrease and started to rework work plans based on that. But they were only able to do that through a lot of dialogue and meetings and stuff. So yeah, it increased the number of meetings and therefore the attention people paid to their effectiveness, especially because Zoom has aspects that wear people out. So 12 hours of Zoom meetings is even more tiring than 12 hours of in-person meetings. However, I will say on the opposite side, it also opened eyes to a couple of things that I think are really net positives when it comes to meeting culture. One is people learned how to have good, inclusive, virtual meetings. So it used to be that if you had most people in the office and a few people virtual, the virtual people were practically bystanders in a meeting and often subject to you know, people eating and chatting and sidebars and stuff. And through COVID, executives have become so much more mindful of what that costs that I think in general, meeting hygiene actually went up a little bit in COVID, both in terms of being respectful of those on the phone and actually inclusion. So this, of course, converged that COVID did with with all the, the social justice stuff and all a renewed focus on inclusion and diversity. And tech actually offers some really great ways to increase diversity of voices without increasing time and inefficiency in meetings that you can't do in person. So for example, you can say, hey, we got a big decision. We want to hear from everybody about which direction we should go. But if we go around the table, it's a death march. And anyway, most people start to repeat what the first person said. But if we just say, hey, everybody, these are the three directions we could go, put in chat which one you think, and let's just get a quick read on where we are, and then we'll go from there. You can get massive inclusion and efficiency at the same time. And I I think leaders are starting to see the power and possibility of that. So it's a mixed bag for sure. (laughs) Well, let's take a break from our discussion and focus on those five questions that our listeners can ask to see if their company is really serious about in decreasing the negative impact of meetings and emails. What are those five questions, Renee? Okay, the five questions. The first one is, are you a manager or a maker? You need to understand that in order to understand the data that comes back. The second is, how many hours are you in meetings per week? So we A, get a benchmark and B, get sort of a histogram or a range. The third is, which of the following statements is more true? I control my calendar or my calendar controls me. That's important because it'll give you a sense of whether your people feel a sense of agency and control. The fourth question is, given my role, the number of meetings I'm in is too many, just right, or too few. And the fifth question is, think about all the meetings you're in over the course of a week or a month and think about the things that create waste within those meetings, late starts, technology snafus, lack of prep, unclear purpose, wrong people, tangents, et cetera. And answer the question, what percentage of total meeting time is wasted? So those five questions will help you understand what is the experience that my employees are having? Is it different based on whether you're a maker or manager? And do we have a volume problem? Do we have a quality problem? Or do we have a a sort of a human sense of agency problem? And from there, you'll know how to go about solving it. So eight years of stop meeting like this. Renee, could you just give me a rule of thumb? What percentage 
of companies that I'll say that you spoke to, which is already a little bit of selection bias, were yep. really serious enough of addressing this issue that they would engage and really put a program together. 10%, 80%, what is it? I would say it's a, about 50%. And, and it was very industry specific. So in biopharma, 100%. Even startups, even very young, just getting started biopharma companies, 100%. Tech startups, retail, financial services, a little less likely. So maybe on average, 50 to 60% took it seriously enough to put the kind of infrastructure in place to produce really meaningful results. One of the reasons I asked that question was, there was another topic I wanted to talk to you about. And that was at the same time that we looked at making sure we could have a virtual workforce because of the pandemic, we had the social justice issues. There was also from a capitalistic perspective, a lot of discussion that really surfaced to the top of a lot of airwaves like CNBC. Was that about stakeholder capitalism? And associated with that was often ESG, or Environmental, Social, and Corporate Governance Responsibilities. So here's my question, Renee. I thought maybe it was 20 or 30% of companies, but you said, you know, 50 on average, were serious enough about employee productivity, which is also employee well-being, to invest in it. I'm still a little uncertain that companies are going to invest in ESG unless there's some either market or even SEC mandates. What's your perspective on that? Yeah, I think it's that is true, but those market forces are here. So if you think about employee productivity and well-being, no matter who you are and, and how well-intentioned you are, there's some challenges with getting a persistent leadership focus on those. And one is a really hard to measure. So even if I can improve your employee productivity, let's say 20%, and you're thinking, well, A, they'll just work 20% harder otherwise, so I'm not sure I'm net ahead. <laughs> or, okay, we give people 20% of their time back, what are they going to do with it? And how are we going to know that it drives value, right? And then in the employee well-being space, often that gets categorized as an HR initiative, which as you know, Ray, will make it unlikely that it becomes an ongoing C-suite or board level discussion. Ah, I hadn't thought about that. It's an HR initiative past next. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 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 The, uh, the death knell. But ESG is is different in my mind. And I and I think here's some really, I think, relevant and timely examples. You know, there was a tiny activist hedge fund, engine number one, in the news recently, which surprised everyone, including Exxon executives, by gaining three seats on the Exxon board. They're a tiny hedge fund, but they ran a slate of candidates on the platform, a single issue platform, which is Exxon's not doing enough to pursue a renewable strategy. And that is putting investors at risk. And that tiny hedge fund managed to secure enough support from Exxon's huge investors that they got three seats on the board. If you look at customer RFPs coming in for tech companies these days, especially customers doing business in the EU, you will see ESG requirements in those RFPs. Like If you want to win this business, you have to, for example commit to shipping a product at the lowest carbon footprint possible, for example. Um, and then there's a third example, which is there's a lot of research continuing to validate the assumption that diversity improves financial performance. So whether, you know, whether you're a big company or a small startup, if that's true, boards are starting to say, well, if that's a driver of performance, let's metrics it. So McDonald's and Amex, for example, are starting to tie executive comp to concrete IND metrics, such as the number of minority or female managers. And so I think for all of those reasons, it is becoming a central factor in an organization's 
growth strategy and the metrics by which they're going to manage their business. And the last thing I'll say is, I guess, just to follow up on that, it is highly measurable. You can actually benchmark, measure, assure, and improve on really tangible, well-established metrics, whether it's the carbon footprint, the human rights practices of your supply chain, the independence of your board, you know, to kind of hit ES and G. And so I think it's got a different flavor and I think it's here to stay. Yeah, I'm going to double click on that because you hit my sweet spot, which is benchmarking, right? And using metrics. And one of the challenges we have in the B2B SaaS industry is a lot of the non-GAAP. So it's public companies don't have to consistently present things like net dollar retention or a CAC payback period. And as such, I see up to six, seven, eight different calculations included within a 10K or a 10Q. Now, same thing's happening with ESG reporting. I believe that most public companies today have to publish kind of their ESG position. However, there's not standards. And the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, is actually looking at standardizing what actually is covered in an ESG disclosure. So I think it's these external factors that's going to drive this quicker. Do you agree with that? I do. And, and I think that's really necessary for a couple of reasons. One is, first of all, yes, you're right, that because there's a lack of standards, then what you can mean by saying my carbon footprint can be vastly different. For example, some organizations that might mean the energy efficiency of our buildings. Okay, well, that's relatively easy to control. Actually, for another company, it might mean we're picking vendors whose own factories are operating net zero. So I'm going all the way into my supply chain. And those are really different in terms of both scope and uh, benefit. And so if you can't tell the difference, it's hard as an investor to to discern those. And then I kind of think that if the SEC establishes policies, whether they're, they're, they're mandatory disclosures or, or optional, or whether they're categorized by industry, because obviously, you know, a retailer is going to have a really different tech footprint or carbon footprint than say a financial services company that gives organizations a way to report that's reflective of their nuances. And it allows investors to get good data about who to invest in and, and why and to, and to measure it effectively. And then the other thing that I guess the more aspirational part of me is hoping is that it creates a little bit of air cover. So Paul Pullman, who was the CEO of Unilever in 2009, stopped issuing quarterly guidance. And it was because he wanted to roll out a long-term ESG-centric strategy. Now, this is back in 2009 in the midst of the crisis. And when he became CEO, the stock price took a huge hit partly because of the crisis, but another 8% hit when he declared he was going to stop issuing quarterly guidance. But he did that because he didn't want to be beholden to short-term quarterly returns when he wanted to make a long-term investment in an ESG strategy, who they would acquire, how they would operate, who they would do business with, etc. And over the long haul, he doubled the stock price. But a company like Unilever has the market power to do something like that, where a lot of companies don't. And so maybe if we have a better ESG reporting framework, it gives executives who want to do that kind of thing more air cover, if you will. And then the last thing I'll say is the issue of socially responsible investing or social impact investing is pretty interesting. BlackRock CEO has said that ESG is a consideration in their investment decisions. And here's an interesting stat for you, Ray. The US-based assets under management that are employing ESG investing strategies increased 42% in the last two years. So if the SEC can, can issue recommendations or requirements and companies can follow them, they can get access to new capital markets, which is great, a win for everybody. 
Yeah, you know, I can kind of understand why publicly traded companies, they hear, see, and feel kind of the groundswell around ESG by their potential customers, the market, and they are large enough, maybe they can make those investments. A lot of the listeners on my podcast, on the Metrics of Major Up podcast, they're entrepreneurs, founders of B2B SaaS and cloud companies. And just by the standard bell curve, most of those are less than $20 million in ARR. Yep. How does an ESG program or policy make a difference for a smaller company that doesn't have the resources? They're just trying to survive and thrive every day, Renee. Yeah. Well, I think you have to find as, you know, as somebody who I know we're both a fan of said that the genius of the and. So let's say you're a, a small but fast growing SaaS company focused on ARR growth through net new logos, right? And maybe you're the customer segment you've targeted to, to drive that growth is large enterprise. Many of those, so it's not you, but your customers are out there publicly saying that they're going to have an ESG strategy that includes their entire supply chain and, and more and more are doing so. So now if you have a data center that uses clean energy, for example, you are doing good for the environment. Maybe you're accelerating green jobs, which is good for society. But most importantly, in the context you just said, Ray, you're actually creating competitive advantage for yourself in the market and the ability to access those enterprise customers. I think that's one example. Another is there's some interesting research done by a woman named Rebecca Henderson, and she has found that in early stage companies, right, you know you need to attract super smart, motivated doers and dreamers. Like that's who makes markets. And she found that when even early stage startups have a big idea and big ideals, that their employees have that much more hustle which leads to new sources of value. Like for example, there's this fresh food startup and they were really focused on enhancing local urban communities through their business. So that meant they needed to actually locate in some of the most expensive real estate in the world, like New York. In order to make that financially viable for themselves and for their investors, they needed to innovate in a way that they wouldn't have had to innovate had they been in a more rural area. So they engineered innovations in urban agriculture, which then ultimately allowed them to monetize that. So there are always going to be hard choices and a, and a young company can't do the same thing that a big mature company can do. But I think there are tons of opportunities for triple, quadruple wins, making the ROI in an ESG-centric strategy compelling even for the most pragmatic or bootstrapped founder or funder. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about this, but I talked to a lot of our clients who are trying to go from the mid-market commercial ideal customer profile up to enterprise, i.e. those Fortune 1000 companies. Yep. And actually having a position on ESG might not only differentiate you, it might help you get through a procurement process because you hadn't even thought about this before. That's exactly. Very, very insightful. And, and I can tell you that there's sort of almost a race underway to one up each other in net zero commitments underway and net zero being what's the what's your carbon footprint and a lot of organizations are looking to what they call scope 3 which is their supply chains as part of that commitment so it's not just their own operations but that of their entire value chain and trying to one up each other in terms of when they're going to get to net zero and Buying offsets, which is the easy way to get there, is increasingly seen as almost cheating. So I, I can almost guarantee all of your listeners, their companies will start to see customers requiring some kind of ESG position or proof or something. So yes, I agree. Just to double down on your point. 
As we were talking here about ESG, I thought about one of the real thought leaders and innovators in the software as a service industry, and that's Mark Benioff. And, yes. and Mark, the founder of Salesforce. And Mark has a lot over the last six to 12 months about not shareholder capitalism, where you think about what's best for your shareholders, but stakeholder capitalism. And I think it goes even beyond ESG. So do you think we're going to evolve even beyond the mandatory ESG reporting and that it's good for the environmentalists out there? Is there another level of that stakeholder capitalism that we even talked about yet, Renee? Yeah, and I I think they're related for sure. But what I like about stakeholder capitalism is it reminds us, okay, so let's just stipulate that capitalism is the most effective engine for growth and wealth creation like the world's ever seen, right? So capitalism is good, but capitalism focused on shareholder only generates really detrimental outcomes in other things that actually most executives and humans care about, like communities. So if you say, I am going to drive shareholder value by having... Okay, I'll just take a funny example because this actually goes back to to Benioff. I'm going to have free food for my employees so they can work those 70, 80, 100 hour weeks and not have to leave the campus, right? So I'm going to bring a cafeteria on my campus and I'm going to give my employees free access to all the food they want. Okay, cool. That's maybe good for your employees and that's probably good for your shareholders. But it's not good for your local community because two things are going to happen. One is the way that you make that work for a bottom line is you outsource that cafeteria to a third party and you drive their cost down year over year. And they therefore drive the the pay that they can afford to pay people and the benefits that they can afford to give people down, 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 right? To where you've got a real sort of an inequity. And you're actually taking business away from capitalist enterprises in the community, i.e. restaurants. And so that's why Benioff actually said, I'm not going to put cafeterias in place. I want you to walk the streets, go to the businesses that are owned by business owners and capitalists inside our own community. And that is better for all. That's better for the employees. That's better for the communities and ultimately for the shareholders as well. So yeah. And I think the innovations, if you think about it from a stakeholder perspective, the environment is one stakeholder, local communities are another, your value chains, another, your customers, of course. And if you think about how you serve all of them, you'll ultimately produce a much more sustainable form of capitalism. Well, interesting. So, you know, I thought Mark Roy was talking a lot about, and by the way, I know Mark, you're listening to this podcast, so feel free to come on and talk about this if you'd like. But, um, you know, he's really walking the walk because years ago is when he decided not to put in all those free cafeterias and encourage his employees to walk around initially San Francisco. That's yep. very interesting. Hey, Renee, unfortunately, we're coming up on our window of time here, even though I could talk for hours to you about this. But I know when we were talking about you being on the podcast, you were actually thinking about creating another new company that really focused on this entire, I don't know if I'll call it stakeholder capitalism, but can you tell us a little bit about what's kind of created the thought that you should create a new company focused on this? Yes. And I will keep it very brief, but I'm inspired by the work of the economist, Kate Rotworth, and she has a great TED talk. So anybody should go look at it. But she basically posits that sort of 20th century notions about growth have to be fundamentally revisited. And we have to find a way to grow at a way that creates wealth for all shareholders and stakeholders, but not in a way that exceeds the capacity of any of those. So I'll just give you one small example. There is a carpet company called Interface, and they used to take a raw material like a plastic or something, produce a carpet that when it was end of life would go into landfill. So it was like input, make, output, done, one and done. And they have created a much more circular or almost regenerative 
regenerative business where they actually take fishing nets out of the sea. So they're taking the waste from the fishing industry and using it to make products that A, don't require any net new materials and B, are biodegradable on the back end. So they have reimagined a carpeting industry that's inherently regenerative, that is better for all stakeholders just by the way it does work. And I'm very interested in looking for opportunities to help other businesses do the same thing within their practices. Could be your shipping policies. It could be putting 3D printers in your data centers so that you can make spare parts right then and there. But what are those things that organizations can do to become much more inherently regenerative so that growth becomes sustainable for all? So it's really a concept that takes reverse logistics, and we won't go to that, and really to the next step where when you look at the end of life, it really becomes regenerative and the beginning of life for the next product or the next service. Exactly. So maybe you could even say your products in the data center have to operate at an exceptionally high level of performance, but maybe when they can no longer serve that, maybe there's access to a whole secondary market. You could sell you know, the data center equipment into an entire secondary market, creating a whole new revenue stream for your company and extending the life of a product, for example. That's the idea. Well, unfortunately, our time's come to the end, but I want the audience to get a chance to get to know Renee a little bit better. And I, I do that through kind of three quick questions. And the first is, you know, what CEO or company do you think is a must follow in 2021 for our audience? Given this conversation, right, I'm going to go with Patagonia. They've been doing this longer than anyone. And they have figured out you can actually drive profit through purpose. And they have a great blueprint for how to make stakeholder capitalism real. And plus, they're a lot of fun. So that's the one I would suggest you follow. And of course, we are not only the metrics to measure up, but we talk to B2B SaaS professionals every day here on the show. So what is the tool that you think every company needs to use to, quote unquote, ensure we have improved employee productivity? Yes, yeah, so I'm going to cheat, right? Because, you know, the expression, the best workout is, is the one you'll do. <laughs> right? I feel that way about technology tools for one specific business process, which is asynchronous collaboration or collaboration that can happen outside of meetings and iteratively. It's absolutely key to innovation, inclusion, and efficiency. So whether it's Asana, Box, Monday.com, Basecamp, pick the tool that's right for you and then double down on adoption and the norms that actually make it produce the um, kind of effectiveness within your employees that, that you deserve and need. Interesting. So you went beyond collaboration to asynchronous collaboration. I like that kind of definition. And then lastly, and my daughter just graduated from college, so it's very germane to me right now. If you were sitting down with a recent college graduate, or even someone who's maybe been out in the workforce for just a year or so, but they want to be a company founder like you have been, what advice would you give them? I would give them three things and congratulations to Taylor. The first is use the opportunity to be early in career to understand the value engine of your company. So think about a company like Walmart, right? Low cost drives demand, right? Now think about something like Apple. Demand drives premium price. So they both have a price and a demand equation, but they're the opposite. Get super curious about what it is that's driving value in any company you work in, and that will just give you a conversancy and a language that'll help you when you become a founder later in life. The second is really take note of the type of work or projects where you do your best. And when you're early in career, you're going to maybe do work that's boring or outside your preference, but notice what you're experiencing in work and what the patterns are. When are you totally in flow? When are you shining? When do people look to you? What gives you the greatest amount of energy? Because then when you become a founder, you'll know who you are and you'll know what team you need to build around you to be awesome. And then the third is 
figure out what you stand for, get clear on your values, and then fearlessly build them into the fabric of your company when you're ready. That's great advice. And I think I wrap that into be really intentional about what energizes you, what you enjoy doing, and make sure you have the competencies and experience to make it a reality, right? Exactly. Okay, well, that's a wrap to today's episode. And to our listening audience, if the topics that we're discussing and the guests that we have here on the Metrics of Major Up podcast are valuable to you and you're enjoying them, it would mean the world to us if you would subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app and provide us a rating and even your comments on how we can make this show even better. Renee, thank you for being our guest today. Oh, thank you for having me, Ray. It was great. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.